Welcome to the CROCcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Josh Lupo, and I am the editor and writer for the Continuing Modernities Project, a research initiative within the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies focused on the interaction of secular and religious forces in the modern world. The project is directed by Dean Scott Appleby, Atalia Omer, and Ibrahim Musa. I'm joined today by Professor Omer, who along with me co-edited the volume we are here to discuss today, Religion and Broken Solidarities, Feminism, Race, and Transnationalism. I'll invite Atalia to introduce herself and provide the background for this book now. Hello, my name is Atalia Omer. I'm a professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the Koch Institute. And as Josh just indicated, a co-director of Contemporary Modernities. And this book is the first installment of three volumes that focus on big questions pertaining to religion and modernity with a focus on political violence, but also the possibilities for solidarities or what prevents solidarities from unfolding and happening. All right, I'll now turn to contextualizing the book itself. So over the last decade, right-wing populism and nationalism have been ascendant in different political contexts around the world. The UK's vote to leave the European Union in 2016, along with the election of Donald Trump in the United States later that year, are perhaps the most well-known events that heralded this moment. But the phenomena is more widespread than this event. It has also been present in the election of populist right-wing leaders in Hungary, Brazil, India, and Israel, and in rising Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, and xenophobia in this context and others. In January 2018, the Contemporary Modernities Research Initiative gathered scholars working at the intersections of religion, nationalism, and race to discuss this burgeoning populist moment around the world. The result of that workshop are three edited volumes to be published by the University of Notre Dame Press under the Contending Modernities Theory. The first of these three volumes is the aforementioned Religion and Broken Solidarities, Feminism, Race, and Transnationalism, which was released in fall 2022. This volume traces moments of broken solidarities, a phrase introduced by Perrine Gurel and her contribution to the volume. And this is where in political moments of alliance between marginalized communities were fractured because of perceptions of national, religious, or ethnic difference. From the failure of women in Turkey and Iran to see common cause with one another due to differences in nationality, to the fracturing of feminist alliances following the Women's March, to the challenges of Mithrahi and Palestinians seeking common cause with one another, we find in these essays solidarity interrupted. Because of the various ways in which gender, race, nationality, and class both block solidarity and make it possible, the approach taken by the contributors to this volume is necessarily intersectional, as is its wider aim, to examine interlocking forms of oppression so that we might build liberatory movements to challenge right-wing nationalism and populism. joined by two contributors to this volume, Ruth Carmi and Brenna Moore, along with Melanie McAllister, who penned a synthetic response to the volume that also stands as an important contribution on its own. Herring Gorel and Juliana Hamer, the two other contributors to the volume, were unable to join.
So we're going to turn now to an interview with Ruth Carmi and Talia Omer, who co-authored the piece Transgressive Geography and Litmus Test Solidarity. So to start out, Ruth, can you introduce yourself? And then Natalia, I wonder if you could begin by giving a description of the argument of the piece and what led you to write it. Sure, thank you for having me. I'm Ruth Carmi. I'm a PhD candidate in the University of Notre Dame for Sociology and Peace Studies and a future assistant professor of sociology in Appalachian State University. Thanks, Josh. So I'll just say a few words about the chapter that Ruth and I co-authored yeah, we wanted to examine the margins of Israeli society and especially focus on the experiences and modes of critique of emerging from Ethiopian and Islamic communities and their links to a Jewish Zionist supremacist discourse that we connected otherwise conceptually to Europe. Europe is a project, colonial, racialized, genocidal project. And we sought to highlight the limits of the political imaginaries of such non-normative Jewish-Israeli communities. Those limits to form cross-cutting solidarities are due to their embeddedness in the Jewish supremacist ideological national confines. We examine, therefore, the difficulties to articulate intersectional disruption, but also trace moments of such interruptions, moments where the intersectionality was self-evident for various actors from the margins of Jewish-Israeli society. So, for example, we examine the story of a young Israeli of Iranian roots, who is a comedian who tells jokes in Arabic and is able, therefore, to inhabit the space differently, not as a settler colonial person, but as someone able to communicate in Arabic and re-articulate her belonging and identity outside of the ideological cages that we have just alluded to. I should add that Arabic is mostly deployed in that landscape of Palestine and Israel for security reasons. So it's a tool of security, whatever that means, rather than of communication. So we ask, what does it mean in sites where Arabic is reclaimed for intersubjective and intercommunal communication, just to talk to one another? Our contribution then traces a global discursive landscape that prohibits the formation of South solidarities because of the binary metaphorical construction of Israel as an embodiment of white colonial supremacy. And Palestine also is deployed metaphorically in connection to anti-colonial struggles. So it's very difficult for someone, for instance, who is Ethiopian in the context of the Israeli framework to be accepted into a broader global movement for anti-racism unless she also relinquished her kind of Israeliness. So those are some of the tensions that we grappled with in our contribution. Great. So one of the things we wanted to do with this book was to make sure that all the essays in the book spoke to one another. So Ruth, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you see the themes you pursue here in your chapter, you and Natalia's chapter, relating to the other chapters in the book. Sure. So, you know, I was I was rereading the book in preparation for a conversation. And I think that in addition to the themes of religion, modernity, and broken solidarities, these essays offer an important academic intervention. 
I think all the essays in the book, especially when read together, show the power of academic writing and scholarship to offer not only a critique of the current moment, but a way to move forward. Uh, Bell Hooks spoke of theory as a form of practice, and in, in many ways, I think that this is what all the essays in the book set out to do. In this sense, it is a collective project of critique or meaning-making with a liberatory potential, and I think this characterizes each of the essays. Along these lines, the book is not just a complex and concerned reading of the current moment. The critique this book offers show possibility of reimagining identity in a way that transcends national boundaries and can create new solidarities and alliances, whether those are Muslim-Muslim alliances, Catholic-Catholic alliances, or Palestinians and Jews of color alliances. Now, while there are a lot of similarities between how these possibilities are reimagined and in identifying the barriers that prevent them from realizing, reimagining is not one size fits all. And so another way in which I think our essay relates to other essays in this book is the nuances we offer. As you read the different essays, you can see that the authors are pushing beyond simple or reductive explanation of how solidarities form or are prevented from happening. Because in many ways, it is this reductive explanation and binaries that obscure possible solidarities. In the case of Israel, as we show the binary of Jews versus Palestinians or Jews versus Arabs, as referred to by the Israeli hegemonic discourse, assimilate all Jews as one group, erasing the violent histories and current oppressive mechanisms that operate in Israel against Jews of colors and how those relate to the oppression of Palestinians. In the example of Turkey, raised by Gorel, a reductionist approach equates any religious symbol with oppression and conservatism and so as something to reject. In many ways, none of these essays make life easy for the readers in the sense that they expose the reductionist tendencies of social struggles or the need to nuance and make space from complexities that will enable the forming of transnational and intersectional solidarities that can challenge oppressive structure. But nuance is not easy. In our example of Israel-Palestine, it is not just an inner Israeli social justice discourse that upholds a binary, of Jews versus Arabs, international activists who stand in solidarity with Palestinians also uphold this binary, which denies the fact that the oppression and exclusion of Jews of color can be traced to the same Eurozionist hegemonic system. And so what we end up with is a litmus test of who can partake in the struggle, which solidarities can be formed. These ideas resonate with the question raised in Hammer's piece about the Women's March, which did not live up to its potential in many ways because of its inability to embrace nuance and sustain broad coalitions. Instead, the Women's March uh, form of litmus test became a way to obscure the marking and rejection of Islam. Now, bringing different case studies such as Israel-Palestine, Turkey, the Women's March, or Black Catholicism highlights how complicated it is to embrace nuance, and I can certainly identified with that challenge. I worked for many years as a social change lawyer in Israel, and there is a sense of urgency that accompanies the doing involved in social change that often doesn't leave space for complexities and either ignores the suffering of certain groups or even recreates hierarchies of power. What this book offers for me is a way to both understand how embracing nuance can happen by giving concrete example from different local contexts but also highlights the importance of this form of scholarship that has its ear to the ground and is in itself a form of intervention, an intervention I recognize in each of these essays. Great, thank you for that response. I think it really, it helps us see where 
there are these points of connection and, and what it means to think complexly about those points of connection. So the third question I have for you is, is thinking a little more in the, the current moment about what this essay is doing. So I wonder if you might reflect on the argument of the essay in light of the recent challenges to democracy in Israel. We're seeing this folding in real time. And so when listeners listen to this, there might be new developments. But at the moment, at least, we're, we're seeing the overhaul of the Supreme Court's role in the government and a strong reaction to it amongst the public and, and public protests. So I wonder if you see this moment as one of a time for potential new solidarities to take shape or if what's going on is not as galvanizing for the formation of those kinds of solidarities as it might appear at first? This is a great question and one that has to be asked in this current moment when you read this book. So what is happening now in Israel is, of course, not just as an overhaul of the Supreme Court, but a trampling of democratic foundation and an attempt to establish a government with unrestrained power. As a reaction, there is also a protest on a scale that we did not see before in Israel. Now, government and coalition members called the protesters anarchists. And the protesters, of course, turned this around. And their reaction is something along the lines of, if protesting for democracy is anarchy, so we're anarchists. Now, when I hear it, I think I wish they were anarchists, at least in the sense of wanting to break down the current order. Because unfortunately, what most of the protesters want is to maintain the social economic order that benefit the Jewish middle class, mostly of Zionist roots. And these are a lot of the people you see protesting. The binaries we point out to in our piece and the ethno-racial nationalist discourse don't leave room for nuance and complexities in the protest. In many ways, this leads to the protesters expropriating the protest precisely from the publics who will be the first to be harmed by this coup. So for these publics, the current social order is one of oppression and exclusion. The Supreme Court is one of the pillars that uphold and maintain the occupation and the legal apartheid in the occupied territories and denies Palestinians of group rights. And so for Palestinians to partake in the protest basically means fighting to maintain a structure that oppresses them. This doesn't mean welcoming the overhaul of the Supreme Court, that in many ways is the last resort in protecting individual rights. But Palestinians, as well as Ethiopian and Mizrahi Jews, cannot partake in a discourse that portrays the Supreme Court as a site of justice or an oracle of human rights. Another aspect that marginalized these publics, and especially Palestinians, from the protest is the militarized discourse that accompanied it. When generals, pilots, and heads of what is referred to in Israel as Israel's security forces are the face of the protest, you cannot help but wondering what kind of democracy are we fighting for? Of course, for most Israelis, as our piece shows, this is not a question because they ignore the violent legacies embedded within Israeli ethno-religious national democracy and bracket how it harms not only Palestinians, but also Jews of color and mostly women of color. However, going back to the question of solidarity, we can also see in this protest a new, more critical discourse emerging that's asked broader question about equality and violence. After in February 26, 2023, hundreds of Jewish settlers enabled by the Israeli army raided the village of Hawara for more than five hours, burning buildings, houses and property and the killing of Samach Akhtash, a new sign appeared in the protest, asking where have you been during the riots in Hawara? To make it clear, what happened in Hawara is not an isolated incident, but usually such incidents of settlers' violence don't make their way to the heart of the Israeli mainstream. 
The call, where have you been in Hawara or during Hawara, is an opportunity to unpack the connection between what happens in Hawara and brutality. It is not surprising that Itamar Bengvir, the successor of Kahana, is connected to both incidents. As the minister of police, he's in charge of not protecting Palestinians against settlers' violence, pushing for the police to use more violence against a protester, but also refusing to legislate a law that was intended to protect women from their violent spouses. Bengvir acts make it clear to anyone who still had a doubt that Kahanist ideology is now ruling the Israeli government and upholding white supremacy, and this ideology is entrenched in violence and oppression, not only for Palestinians, but also of women, Jews of color, and anyone who upholds ideas of equality and social justice. The call, where have you been during Hawara in Hawara, seems to mark a new understanding among protesters that will hopefully lead to the creation of transnational and intersectional solidarities that will allow this protest to expand and make room for a more complex understanding and a broader call for change and social justice. Well, thank you, Ruth, for joining us for this conversation today. All right. Josh, I think that our conversation with Wood was really great, very meaningful. And now let us turn to uh, Professor Brenna Moore. So welcome, Brenna. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So, all right, let us begin by inviting you to introduce yourself and describe the argument of your contribution to the volume and what led you to write it. Okay, great. Well, my name is Brenna Moore, and I teach in the theology department at Fordham University here in New York. And my area of research is primarily Catholic intellectual history. I was primarily trained in European Catholic intellectual history, but now I'm working more on kind of global Catholic modernity. And the chapter was inspired by some research from my newish book called Kindred Spirits, Friendship and Resistance on the Edges of Modern Catholicism. And the chapter in this book is centered on a network of Francophone, you got kind of French speaking, Black Catholic writers, artists, and activists who were prolific in the interwar period through like the 1920s, through post-war period, like in the 1950s, that had some connection to Paris and Harlem in some ways, but they were really interested in forming what became known as Black internationalism in this period of kind of Black activists and artists and writers forming modes of solidarity around lines of of race that exceeded the bounds of nations. So writers who were from the Caribbean, places like Mozambique, to parts of Francophone Africa, artists who came from Harlem and that maybe found themselves in Paris in this period and were interested in modes of friendship and solidarity across lines of nation. And many of them were Catholic, were from Catholic countries or in the case of Claude McKay, converted to Catholicism. And so Catholicism was kind of part of this node of international Black solidarity. And it wasn't so much they were leading with Catholicism. I think it was more like they happened to be Catholic or Catholicism was kind of part of this imaginary around solidarity, but it wasn't like leading, it wasn't a primarily Catholic movement, but, you know, kind of thanks to kind of the colonialism of French Catholicism, much of Africa is is Francophone and many of the Francophone intellectuals went to Catholic schools. 
kind of the Catholic nature of Paris. And all of this helped draw Claude McKay into Catholicism. So it's sort of about this kind of Black Catholic experimentation with modes of international solidarity. And that's what my chapter is sort of describing this movement. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. So I think it is fair to say that your essay is somewhat different than the others that appear in the book, where other contributors analyze moments where solidarity fails to materialize. Your chapter points to a moment where solidarity is realized, however fragmentarily. So how do you read your essay in relation to the others that appear here in the volume? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that question. So yeah, I would say my chapter gets more into sort of a historical uncovering of these experiments with solidarity. And I mentioned briefly some obstacles that got in the way of these experiments, but I maybe got into that less than other chapters, but I do, but maybe I could say a little bit more about that here, that reading my chapter alongside these others, you just see, you know, how hard solidarity across lines of difference is and how many different obstacles can get in the way. And some, you know, a theme that I think, and that's one of the themes that persists across the volume. But I could say, I could say a bit more about that, you know, more explicitly. So these sort of experiments in Black internationalism, they're at the center of my chapter, included Black Catholics that were from Francophone countries in Africa, the Caribbean, the United States, who found themselves in Paris. And they were all very skeptical of the markers of white culture. And for them, this meant kind of Anglo-Protestantism, even Anglo-secularism, liberalism, even white communism. And so in a way, that is what inspired some of these Black international writers to maybe lean into the Catholic part of their background. It was seen as something kind of a marker of difference as opposed to sort of white Anglo liberalism or secularism or Protestantism. And we think of Claude McKay, but also someone like his good friend Paulette Nardal from Mozambique, who spent time in Paris. But there was a lot in there, too, about once they started to kind of lean into their Catholic identity and kind of form study groups or reading groups that invited other white Catholics into their community. How many white Catholics in this period, in the interwar and immediate post-war period, were so obsessed with anti-fascism and anti-communism? I mean, anti-fascism and anti-communism was sort of the political issue for white Catholics and white liberal, white democratic Catholics all around the world. And I don't get into it that much in this chapter, but for people like Claude McKay or Ellen Terry, who was an American black Catholic, very good friend of Claude McKay, Paulette Nerdal, they wrote quite a bit and it was really interesting things about how many white Catholics would try to draw them into the kind of anti-fascist and anti-communist cause. And they would say, you know, it's not that there was anything necessarily wrong with that right away, but they wrote explicitly McKay and his art, Terry and her autobiography about, you know, kind of the skepticism they had for whites to draw them into the cause of anti-communism and anti-fascism when they saw real little sympathy from white Catholics to work with them on issues of black solidarity or anti-racism. So Ellen Terry 
wrote in her memoir about a meeting where the communists were urging Black Catholics and primarily Black Catholic activists to send money to the anti-fascist fight in Spain. And then she said at the meeting, what about Alabama? You know, and she said, the crackers are still killing my people down there and nobody's lifting a finger. And Claude McKay too wrote some poetry about, you know, how many white activists were urging them to fight fascism. And he said, you know, here we in the United States, we're fighting against sort of fascism in the United States, where he says 15 million Negroes are on their knees from the fascist yoke of these United States. So I think that's just an example, you know, that I briefly mention in the book, but I could, you know, it gives this conversation gives me a chance to elaborate of how this Black Catholic movement of international solidarity really did form alliances with white Catholics, but they were more likely to kind of try to be, get drawn out of movements of anti-racism to join the causes of anti-fascism and, and communism. And that made them very skeptical about joining modes of interracial solidarity because of that. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. This is such a profound interview and study. And it leads me to the final question, which is really, I wonder, it's wondering what lessons you think we might take from McKay and his co-religionists in this current moment, in the current moment in which we live, struggle against racism that we are experiencing today, and what role religion might or might not play in sustaining the work of racial justice. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for that question. You know, I really think that there is so much that we can learn from people like these Black Catholic writers like Claude McKay and Ellen Terry. I mean, first and foremost, I would say that they were very, very smart writers of nonfiction. Okay, on the one hand, and we wrote a book, our book is a nonfiction book, and we're writers and teachers and scholars, just like they were. And they did a lot of smart thinking about what power does a book have in our culture and in our politics. So they didn't have with them juridical power behind their writing, just like we don't, like we teach and write, you know, we don't have the power of a police force behind us. We can't, you know, a book, a chapter can't make anyone do anything, right? But they were really, really insightful about how writing really operates in the power and the realm of imagination and how important the imagination is for combating structures of dehumanization that animates racist violence. And they were really explicit about that, you know, and I think that learning from them on that is really important in our own time. So for example, Claude McKay was really interested and Ellen Terry, that their nonfiction writings about black life constantly pushed against depictions of black dehumanization. So they really wrote a lot about something that I think is important in our own time, to not just write about Black trauma and Black violence. And that is what white readers were always interested in reading. They would want to read about Black suffering and Black trauma, and they refused to write for white audiences with an appetite for Black trauma. 
So McKay has beautiful books about Black joy on the beaches of Marseille. And Ellen Terry has incredible books about African-American families living in Harlem and like stories of their pets and just like Black family joy. And, and, and I think when we write about things like poets and writers like Ellen Terry and Claude McKay, we bring those stories of Black joy and Black family life into our own classrooms and our own readerships, because still, I think we're working on having white readers and readers who have control of our media and our court systems and our juridical power that really depend on very kind of one-dimensional stories of Black culture and Black experience, whether that is stories that are fixated on Black trauma or stories that fixate on Black religion looking just like the Black church. Those are all really like one-dimensional ways of thinking about Black experience. And these writers really want to complicate that and want to be really explicit about the important work that nonfiction writing can do to do the work of humanization of those that are dehumanized in our culture. And that work is ongoing and absolutely still needed. So when I teach figures like these to my students, it's not the same as the work that's happening in other Fordham classrooms, like our law school and our poli-sci departments that work on things like legislation around police brutality. But I really do think that humanities can undertake these projects with the help of people like Claude McKay and Ellen Terry that tell more full, complicated histories that give us a more capacious sense of Black humanity and of truth. And really, that's never going to be irrelevant. I think that's absolutely relevant and enduring. So thank you for the question. Wonderful. This is beautiful. I love your analysis of the radical imagination as key to imagine alternative futures and also the disruptions and the challenge that the kind of work that you do in the chapter introduces to reductive accounts of trauma and violence. And this is also a place where the study of religion or hermeneutical approach, the humanities, can really become important interlocutor and participants in the process of reimagining. So thank you so much for that, Professor. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's so well put. Thank you. Thank you so much, Italia, for the question. It's really nice to talk to you. So thanks, Italia, for that conversation with Brenna. I think some of those themes, especially around imagination, are, are likely to, to come up again. So I now want to invite Melanie into the conversation. So Melanie, your piece is written as a response to the others in the volume, but takes up their themes with examples from your own research. So I wondered if you might begin by, of course, first introducing yourself and then maybe taking the example of Angela Davis in Egypt, which I think was quite a profound one, and, and telling us a little bit about why it came to you as you wrote your response to the book. Thank you. Yes, I'm Melanie McAllister. I'm a professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University. And I most recently published The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of American Evangelicals, which is how I've been in this conversation with Italia and all of you for some time. And I was really delighted to get to write the conclusion to this remarkable book 
in part because I learned a lot from reading the book, but also because I've been thinking about questions of solidarity for my own next project, but also just as a person interested in the political world that we live in and the issues that we face. And so what it came to mind, this story about Angela Davis is from right after I graduated from college. So a long time ago in the 1980s, I was living in Cairo for a year, studying Arabic, you know, just sort of hanging out. And while I was there, the feminists who are so well known from Egypt now, like Noel Sadawi, just were not the world figures they were soon to become. And so I could, I like, I went to Noel Sadawi's house and interviewed her. Like people were very friendly and open and generous. And so when the, in the Arab Women Solidarity Association that Noel Sadawi was president of invited Angela Davis to speak to the group. And so I was invited to come along, which I was excited to do. And the lecture was in in English, and most of the people at the lecture spoke English, but it was also translated. So Angela Davis is there. She's talking mostly about, she did a kind of talk about welfare rights in the U.S. and the ways that the surveillance state oversaw women who were on welfare in the U.S. It was all very interesting, but I can think kind of far away from the day-to-day concerns of most of the women in the room who were Egyptian And then almost as an aside, she explained why she was there. And she was there because she had been asked to write a chapter in a book about women in the global context, where women feminists from different parts of the world were asked to go to other countries and write about specific topics. So Noelle Sadawi herself had been invited to go to England and write about women in education. And Jermaine Greer was going to write about women in politics in Cuba. And then... Angela Davis had been invited to come and write about women and sex in Egypt. And when she said that, the room just exploded, like a kind of quiet meeting, which where people have been kind of interested. Suddenly people were very energized and very angry. And they were angry because they felt like they were really tired and they made no bones about being really tired of American women focusing on them as Egyptian women in relation to things like the veil, clitoridectomy, sexuality, male oppression. They were like, why aren't you writing about women in education in Egypt or women in politics in Egypt? Why is it about women in sex? It's just like you Americans, you always do this. And you could see, I have to say, Angela Davis was so taken aback. Like this black revolutionary communist woman was not used to being hailed under the category, you Americans, right? (laughs) But in that moment, that's exactly what she was. I mean, she was reproducing some of the worst parts of American feminism, even though it wasn't her, she she had been assigned the topic, but she took it on. And so she did really try in the piece that she ultimately wrote to pay attention to these other things, to issues of education, to critique the focus on sex, even though she does go through and talk about the veil and talk about male oppression as well. And for me, it was a very telling moment where the, I mean, Davis clearly thought of herself because of who she was and is as someone who people would see as in solidarity, who would just give her the givens of being a radical feminist revolutionary woman who was in solidarity with third world women. And that solidarity was just the perfect example in my mind of a kind of broken or failed a solidarity that she then attempted to weave back into a whole. 
but that in fact, the terms of the debate were so fraught and so pre-structured by kind of American feminist imperialist attitudes toward women in the Middle East that she couldn't quite write herself out of it, even though she was Angela Davis. And for me, that has shaped a lot of my thinking about global feminism, about the problems of trying to be in solidarity when you're from a position of great power and, and are rightfully resented for a lot of different reasons around the world if you're an American. So that's what made me think of it. And it was a story that I hadn't actually ever put in print before and I wanted to write about. Great. Thank you so much for that. Really, I think it's a very illuminating example that kind of makes sense of so much of what's happening in the book. So although your essay is relatively short, there's there's so many interesting pieces to it. And, and one of the other unique things you do in a piece is draw on literature to think through what is at stake in arguments and the other arguments that are advanced in the volume. So can you tell us a little bit about the importance of literature for the imagination and informing and understanding solidarities? Yes, I'd love to. Can I first outline for the people listening what the literature I use is, and then I'll, I'll talk about why I think it's important in general. So I talk in the essay about China Mayville's book, The City and the City, which is a very important book to me, which I like a great deal. And in it, the story is of two different groups of people who share one city, but literally the way he imagines it, they do not see each other. They have to learn to unsee each other, even though they share the same streets, Sometimes have buildings right next to each other. They go to work on the same routes, but they have to, people of one city, Alcum, and another, Bezel, have to share the space without acknowledging the other. And of course, they have to see each other because they can't step on each other and they can't run into each other, but they have to pretend like they cannot. And if you ever overtly see someone from the other side, you've committed a breach and some mysterious forces come and take you away. Nobody ever knows what happens to you. So it's important and people learn from childhood to unsee the people who are right next to them. And I took this story to be a kind of a way of unthinking some of the arguments in the book, in the sense that in the book, we and me all talk about how hard solidarity is, you know, how hard it is to construct these connections across difference, the different ways it can go wrong, the things that we think about. Even the article that talks about Black internationalism, you know, shows it as, as fragile, right? And so what I thought that China Mayville is doing in this story is doing something more than just like having a little metaphor for racism, but or religious prejudice, but actually talking about how we have to learn, have to learn to unlearn our connections with other people, that there is actually work in teaching us to not see our solidarities with others, that we are trained up to see our nationalism, our race, our disconnection from people in other countries, wealthy countries having difficulty seeing the global South, you know, all of those differences are actually trained up, that our impulse would be to actually see others, to actually connect, but that we are trained not to, and we become experts at it. And so I love that story in the book, and I, I, and I used it in a way because I wanted to, I use literature a lot this way, I think, I wanted to have it challenge the empirical world that we know, where we know solidarity is hard, by allowing us to think, as, as people like to say these days, to think otherwise, to think about the world in which solidarity might not be so hard. 
where it might be possible to imagine these connections more fully and more richly and to imagine that the reason we don't do that is because of how we are trained. That could evolve into a sort of simple humanism, like we are all alike and we are all connected. And I don't think it is that. I think one of the important things about the book, The City in the City, is that the people are different. They speak slightly different languages and they have very different religions. They aren't the same, but they are in the same space. They are deeply connected. And I think that for me, I'm a big fan of speculative fiction in general, like a complete and utter geek from like deep down to the present. And that kind of work is obvious in this way, in the way it kind of asks us to imagine what could be possible outside of our ordinary circumstances. But I think it, at its best, and actually almost always, those speculations, those world buildings are never separate from trying to imagine how, if we could think like that, what it might matter, how it might change the world that we live in. And so I think literature can be really important to spark our political imaginations if we let it and to require of us to let go of some of the assumptions that we carry that we maybe don't even know that we carry. So that's why I found Mayville, I find Mayville very interesting, but I find a lot of different speculative fiction really interesting for that. So I actually teach a course at GW called The Politics of the Future, which is all about speculative fiction, where students and I sit through and work through a lot of different speculative fiction. That nicely leads into my last question, I think, which is sort of thinking about the future and hope a little bit. So I'm curious as to where you see hope today, where you see the necessity perhaps to temper hope for liberatory movements based on solidarity. Yes, thank you for that question. And I have two things I think I want to say about it. One is, I think that when we think about solidarity, and I don't know if this is hope or tempering hope. When we think about solidarity as a political question, I think it requires three things. It requires effective investment. It requires actually emotional commitment, not just an intellectual one. We have to have some have to have some skin in the game in some way or another. It requires humility. We have to learn the things that we don't know and be committed to understanding that there are always going to be more things we don't know that we have to keep learning. We're never experts on the process of connection making with other struggles or other people. And the third thing I think it requires is discipline, that we have to keep in the struggle, even when it's not fun, even when it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, even when it's not going that well. And I will say that that discipline for me is often the hardest thing. I mean, I've been working on Palestinian issues since 1985, and it it's been hard. <laughs> and there are times when I back off because it is so hard. But I think that you can't just go into the flow of a wonderful conference or event or a protest and then see that solidarity is having been kind of lived out and then move on. It takes a kind of discipline of working with people for some extended period of time. So in that sense, maybe it does temper hope because that's a lot, a lot to ask of all of us, especially when you know we're tired. The place I see hope, though, oddly, is in environmentalism. I feel like this is one case where it is clear to most people that we are completely in this together, that there is no chance of the world saving itself unless both rich and poor countries, people of all sorts of different means, find their way into the struggle and work in it together. And the investments that we have, I mean, solidarity, the difference between solidarity and humanitarianism, right, is solidarity says, 
your struggle affects me. It matters to me, not just because I feel better if I give you money or I feel bad for you because you're pitiful, but to say that your struggle, the world when this in which this injustice is happening is a world I don't want to live in. And here we in environmentalism, it's so clear that the struggle of people for land rights, for the right to control their own democratic spaces is also a struggle against extractive capitalism. If you th- I'm thinking about what's going on in Nigeria, or if you think about the ways in which for Americans, the struggle to get people to buy electric cars, that people actually in Palestine might have an investment in that struggle because their world is at stake too. So it seems to me that there's a kind of possibility of solidarity in the environmental struggle because the stakes are so high and and there's no ability to opt out. That doesn't sound optimistic, but that's about as optimistic as I get. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us, Melanie, and for prompting us at the end here to think more about where we see solidarities forming today. I think this is really, really important. So thank you. And it was really fun. And I'm so happy to be part of it. Thank you. So I want to say thanks to everyone who joined us today and for Atalia for being a part of this conversation with me. If you're interested in, in learning more about Continuum Modernities, you can find us on the web at continuummodernities.nd.edu where you'll find pieces by many of the people you, you heard here today. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies part of the Keogh School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.